0: If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be today. It'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have it in front of you, so you can follow along as we read together. Mark chapter 2, our text is beginning in verse 1 and we'll read down through verse 12 together. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, over the course of the last couple of weeks, as we've opened the gospel of Mark together, we've been exploring the identity of Jesus. Who is he? and Who is this that even the wind and the waves would obey him? It's a question that's at the forefront of Mark's gospel for really the first eight chapters of the book. And in his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, he famously puts forward uh, this three options for the identity of Jesus. He says either he's a liar who has deceived everyone into thinking that he is someone that he's not. He's a lunatic, someone who is off his rocker and needs to be locked up in tarot, Or he is actually Lord. He's actually the God of the universe. Lewis says it this way, he says, among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. What this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic On a level with the man who says he's a poached egg. Or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God. Or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit on him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open To us, he did not intend to. Lewis's words are striking with regards to the identity of Jesus. And we see it once again in this text in Mark chapter 2. About who Mark is presenting Jesus to be. He's setting forth the identity of Jesus as God. By recording this episode in which Jesus in his public ministry. Claims the authority to forgive the sins of men. Now, listen, this is a radical claim on the part of Jesus, because the only one who can forgive a sin is the individual against whom the sin has been committed. Listen, if I was hanging out with three of my good friends, let's call them Brian and or two of my good friends called Brian and Jason. Right. They're actually two of my good friends. Um, and Jason is a die-hard Texas Rangers fan. I am a born and bred Houston Astros fan. You know where this is going, right? So, last night, by the way, uh, the Astros, in epic fashion, off of one of the best closers in baseball today, won the American League Championship Series, made it to the World Series in dramatic fashion with bottom of the ninth, two outs, one runner on, walk-off home run by Jose Altuve. A guy who's five foot six, one 168 pounds, right? And so, at 1130 at night, I was trying to celebrate in my living room, but could not because my wife was asleep and so were both my children, right? But let's say I was watching a game between the Rangers and the Astros with my two good friends, Brian and Jason. And the Astros win and Jason just has enough of it. And so he hauls off and he punches me in the mouth, right? Because I'm a huge Astros fan. He busts one of my teeth. My lip is all bloody. There's blood pouring out all over the floor, right? And so Brian sees all of this happen, and He looks at Jason and he says, Jason, I forgive you. Sin to God alone. And the answer to that rhetorical question is what? No one can. Thus, the identity of Jesus being set forth by Mark as one who is able to forgive sins, that he is God. And listen, this would set the stage for the rest of Jesus' earthly ministry in Mark to be filled with intense opposition and murderous intentions on the parts of the scribes and religious leaders of Jesus' day. Because this is is the point at which the the, the scale is tipped and Jesus begins to set His face toward His purpose. The purpose of His incarnation, which was to head to the cross. And we're going to see that more momentarily. But listen, if we take a look at this text this morning, which Jesus claims the authority to forgive sins, what does it teach us? The first thing it teaches us is this, church. That what we need is greater than what we want. What we need... Is greater than what we want. Listen, as we open chapter 2 of Mark's Gospel, Jesus is returning to Capernaum from this, this itinerant traveling ministry that He's had in the region of Galilee where He's gone out and He's begun to preach to all the surrounding towns and villages. And the text tells us in verse 1 that there were so many people who gathered at the home where Jesus was staying, there was no room for anyone else. <laughs> even at the door. So they were all crammed into the house. They were spilling outside the door. You can imagine them perhaps even trying to peek in through the crevices and cracks through some of the windows. They're trying to get an eye on Jesus. And the crowds are reassembled with this kind of intensity predominantly because when Jesus had been there previously, He had healed many of them of their diseases and He had delivered many of them from demons so He had driven out demons and healed their diseases. And so the crowds gathered because they want to see more fireworks, right? They want to see more healings. They want to see more deliverances. But the text tells us what Jesus was doing when He comes back to Capernaum was preaching the Word to them. The crowds gathered because they want to see more people healed and Jesus is preaching and teaching. And yet because Jesus had such a reputation as a healer, He had these five men in the text who devised a plan to bring one of them who was paralyzed to Jesus for healing. Okay. Now the problem, there was no way to get into where Jesus was. So you imagine them showing up at the house, and there's Jesus inside. They can't see him. Maybe they hear his voice carrying outside, but there's people crowding around the doorway. There's no way. There's no lane that's passable for them to get to Jesus. So what are they determined to do? They climb up onto the roof. And that day there weren't shingles and uh, radiant barrier or metal roofs, right? It was. It was and mud that were all compiled together. And so they begin to dig through that. And as they dig, you can imagine just some of the pieces of the roof falling in as they're digging a hole. And everyone's looking up trying to figure out what's going on. Well, eventually a hole is created. And they take this man who's paralyzed, his legs are immobile, and they lower him down on his mat in front of Jesus. Now, what we might expect, and what they probably expected in their day was that Jesus would see the faith of the men of trying to get to Him, their commitment and dedication to bring this man to Him, and restore the legs of the paralyzed man they would all be upon their merry way happily ever after. Yet whenever they lower the man before Jesus, Jesus doesn't address the immobility of His legs, He addresses the immorality of His life. That's crucial to our understanding of what's going on in this text. He says, sons, your sins are forgiven. Now listen, if Jesus had said that, like if somebody had a you know, battery-powered circular saw and was cutting a hole in the top of the roof here to lower somebody down, and Jesus was in our midst, and he was preaching, and they lowered him down, right? And we as modern Americans might say something like this. We might say, uh, <clears throat> you, know, you know, Jesus, appreciate that and all, um, but I don't know if you're aware of this. Uh, it seems like everybody else in the room is aware that I'm not sure you've clued in just yet, Jesus. But listen, there's something going on in my lower body. I cannot walk, right? Jesus, I have a more immediate need than the forgiveness of my sins. I need my legs to be mobilized. I need to be able to stand and walk. That's a more immediate need for me, Jesus. I don't know if you've caught on to that yet, but that's where I'm at. And Jesus says, no, you don't. You don't have a more immediate need. That's what Jesus' response tells him. He says, because what you need is greater, it's deeper, it's more significant, and it lasts longer than what you want. Right? Now look, last week we talked about surface and subterranean needs in our lives. Right, surface needs being the things that we're able to see. Right? We talked about poverty or a failing marriage and relationships. Those are surface needs. But we also said there's such things as subterranean needs in our lives. And when Jesus, listen, oftentimes when we show up to church or we come to Jesus, we're looking for Jesus to meet those surface needs in our lives. And Jesus says, listen, I can meet those, but before I meet those, I need to engage the subterranean needs in your life. I need to engage that massive fault line that runs through every human heart the Bible calls sin. That's what needs to be addressed first in your life, Jesus says. Otherwise, if I give you, if I, if I just address the surface need of your life, you can go on temporarily and live maybe a merry life, but eternally you will be damned to hell on account of your sin. So Jesus cuts through the surface need to their subterranean need of sin. Now listen, we often think of sin as this that sin is the breaking of a rule, okay? That's so what we think of, right? When, when God gives us the Ten Commandments, there's ten rules there. I break one of those. I've broken the rule. I've sinned. When we look at the, look at the our first parents in the garden, and we say, okay, God says, you can eat from any other tree, but as soon as you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened, and right, you will surely, what? Die. Right. So there's a rule there. Our first parents violated the rule, and there's rules that we have, and we violate the rules. But listen, I want you to know that sin is much deeper than the breaking of a rule. Much deeper than that. I want you to consider this definition of sin this morning. That sin is to build your life and identity on anything or anyone other than God Himself. It's the essence of sin. To build your life and identity on anything or anyone other than God. It's looking to anything other than God for satisfaction, for security, and for significance in this life. That's the essence of sin. Right? Now this sin this, this sin might show up in a variety of ways in our life, right? We might look to success in business for security, right? Because the more zeros that we have behind the one in our bank account, the more secure we feel and the more successful we are in business, the more money we make and the more security we have. So we build our identity in our life, the foundation of our life about success in business. That is sin. Or we might build it on our stellar family, success in family. I'm a good parent. Look at the kind of kids that I get. Right? We build our identity on the kind of well-adjusted children who emerge into adulthood. We build our identity on that. Or we build our identity on the kind of, 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 of place that we live, the lifestyle that we're able to maintain. And we say, that's where I get my satisfaction from the kind of life that I live. The freedom that I have, the mobility that I have, have as, as, as a part of my life. Or you might build your identity upon being the smartest, the most athletic, and the most popular in your class if you're a student. You build your identity on all kinds of things. And see, that takes the essence of sin from just the violation of this rule to understanding that sin is placing your trust. It's building your life. It's finding satisfaction, significance, and security in anything or anyone other than God Himself. But here's the problem with that. All right, here's the problem for us when we build our life on anything other than God. Is that even whenever you get what you're looking for, Okay? You're successful in business. your bank account grows, you feel more secure in this life. okay Even when you get what you're looking for right? you get the stellar family, the well-adjusted children who have emerge in adulthood, you have meaningful relationships with them. Okay? Even when you get what you're looking for and you make all A's and you have collected a number of trophies for the championships that you've won in athletic competitions even whenever you finally get to buying the house on the lake and have the lake life, right? Isn't there a show about that somewhere on HGTV? I imagine there is. But right? The lake life. Even when you get all the things that your heart has been longing for, guess what? You are still you. Let me tell you what I mean by that. A lady by the name is Cynthia Heimel, a former writer for The Village Voice in New York City. She, she tells the story of a number of struggling actors and actresses that she had met prior to their right, emergence onto the scene and their fame spreading across the country. She said before they made it, made it big, they were waiting tables in restaurants and taking tickets in movie theaters before their big break when they made it famous. And she said when they were only struggling people like the rest of us, right? They might have had some frustrations in life, challenges in life. They might have been stressed. They might have been driven. They might have had some, some, uh, some issues going on. She said, but, she says, however, um, you know they, they were looking up and they were thinking, if I could only make it in showbiz, if I could only get the promotion right. That's what they were thinking. She said, they were, they, were, they were like us. Right? They were, they were they would have been driven or stressed. But she said, whenever they got what they were looking for, the moment they got what they were looking for, the, 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 the contract was signed, okay, the movie was released, once they became famous, she says, they became awful, unstable, erratic, angry, even manic. And she says, it's not because they became arrogant, or pompous, or puffed up because of their popularity. She says, rather, they became unhappier than they were before. And listen to her words. She says, I pity celebrities. No, I do. Celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, but now their wrath is awful. You see, they wanted fame, they worked, they pushed, they labored. But the morning after each one of them became famous, however, they wanted to take an overdose. Because the giant thing they were striving for, that thing that was going to make everything okay, was going to make their lives bearable and provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness, that thing, it happened. And they were still there. The disillusionment turned them howling and insufferable. See, they got the thing that they thought, if I get this thing, then everything else in my life will be okay. And it wasn't. It didn't satisfy. It didn't make them secure. It didn't give them the kind of significance that they were looking for. And she goes on to say these words. And I... Part of what she says here is very profound, because it's part of it comes straight out of Romans 1, where God turns us over to the desires of our hearts. This is what she says. I think when God wants to play a really rotten, practical joke on you, He grants you your deepest wish, and then giggles merrily when you realize you want to kill yourself. <sighs> and what Jesus says to this paralyzed man in Mark chapter 2 is this. I will not play that joke on you. I will not give you what your heart most desires until I change what your heart most desires. I will not give you your deepest wish until it's no longer your deepest wish. See, church, when, when we first start, for a lot of us, when we first start exploring Christianity, particularly those who make come to faith as adults, when we first started exploring Christianity, when we first started considering Jesus, when we first started attending church, a lot of times we were coming to Jesus so that Jesus would give us X. Right? We wanted to get our lives in order, kind of turn over a new leaf. We felt like if we could make some changes, then we would get the spouse that we had been looking for. Then we would get the job that we had been looking for. And when we would get the house that we have been looking for. Right, when we would get all the things that we've been looking for. And so we come to church, we come to Jesus saying, look, if I could just turn over and delete, if I could just make some changes here, some tweaks here, then my life would be on a trajectory now towards the end that I envisioned for it. But what we don't realize when we first begin to explore claims to Christianity is that what we need saving from is ourselves. Ourselves, and I think there's no place that perhaps has put this more beautifully metaphorically than in the third installment of C.S. Lewis's Narnia Chronicles in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So when you saw the movie, the book, and, the, and the books and the movies aren't always exactly the same, but in the book, okay, in the book, we meet this young boy named Eustace, and Eustace is a is a young preteen age preadolescent child, right? And everybody hates him, and he hates everyone, right? He gets on everyone's nerves because he's incredibly selfish and self-centered. He's mean-spirited in the way that he interacts with the people. So nobody likes Eustace, and Eustace doesn't like anyone. But he finds himself on this boat called the Dawn Treader, taking this epic voyage across the ocean. And at one point of this voyage, they come upon this deserted island. And Eustace wanders off of the boat. He begins to explore the island. As he explores the island, he finds a cave. And inside that cave, he finds a massive hoard of treasure, okay? There are gemstones and jewelry. There is gold and silver and useless things. He has hit the jackpot. He is rich and he begins to think to himself in the quietness of that moment that because he now is rich and will have power and prestige and authority, that everyone who laughed at and stepped on him, he will now laugh at and step on them. But what Eustace doesn't realize is the way he stumbled upon is the horde of a dragon. And yet, Eustace falls asleep there on the horde of that dragon thinking very dragonish thoughts in his heart. And so when he awakes, he finds that he's become a dragon. He's become this terrible, horrible, ugly monster. And he realizes that he's going to have to live out his days in isolation from all other people. Until one day, the great lion, Aslan, shows up. And Aslan shows up. He takes Eustace to the edge of a clear pool. And he says to Eustace, he says, undress and get in. Undress and get in.
1: And so Eustace at that point realizes, maybe, maybe I
0: can take off the scales. Maybe I can rid myself of all of the ugly beastliness. And so he begins to claw away at his scales. And as he claws away at his scales, the scales begin to fall. And he goes, He gets encouraged. So he claws even faster and faster and more voraciously, as more and more scales begin to fall, eventually he sheds his skin. But as he sheds his skin, what he finds in the book is that he's still a dragon. He's still a dragon. And so he tries it a second time and a third time. And he keeps trying over and over and over and over again to claw away at the scales. But what he finds every single time is that underneath there is still a dragon there are still scales until finally the great lion Aslan says to him you're gonna have to let me do it. <clears throat> and these are Eustace's words. Listen to Lewis's words as Eustace responds. He says I was afraid of his claws I can tell you but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So the very first tear that he made went so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. When he began pulling the skin off it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. While he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I had done myself before the other three times, only they hadn't heard it before. There it was, lying in the grass, ever so much thicker, darker, and knobbly looking than the others had been. Then he threw me into the pool, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. Then I saw I had become a boy again. Now listen, church, if you've had any real dealings with the real Jesus, not a Jesus of your imagination, not a Jesus that you have you've created, not a Jesus of your own life with a real Jesus, you cannot help but read Lewis's words out of the mouth of Eustace and be moved because you've had an experience as well where it felt like his claws were gonna go straight to your heart. As it begins to peel away the beastliness. of our lives and knows the condition of our hearts. Listen, a number of years ago when I was pastoring this church through a season of transition from one location to another as we began to lose family after family after family after family after family through the chain. I began to realize, I experienced one of those moments because, listen, this is not only happens in conversion, but it happens every time the Lord begins to work to sanctify you. Yes. His claws go into your heart and to peel layers away that you didn't even know were there. And listen, I can tell you from personal experience that as this church dwindled down to about 25 people in this room, and I stood at the back of that room wondering if we were going to be here two months later, much less three years later. God taught me something through that. The, the, the claws of the lion were reaching into my own heart, being to peel away a layer of pride. Because I've built my, I've been building over the last, the previous three years, my identity upon, my success in ministry. But if I could prove my word to everyone who doubted me, everyone who overlooked me, everyone who passed me by, everyone who refused to acknowledge and see just how much of a gift I was to them. If I could be successful in ministry, then I would be significant. Then I would be secure. Then I would be satisfied. And through that experience, the claws of a lion were reaching into my heart and were peeling that layer of scale away. And only looking back, do I see how beastly and dark and knobbly it was as it lay on the grass behind me. Listen, church, have you ever had that experience with Jesus? Well, you've come to Him for one thing, saying, if I can leverage Jesus to get what my heart really wants, and Jesus says, that will destroy you, let me take out that desire. Let me peel it away. And it's going to be painful. As you've to said, it's going to smart more than anything. That means it hurts, right? In the English line, old English. It's going to hurt more than anything that you've ever experienced, but only for a moment. Because what you need is greater Deeper and longer lasting In what you want The second thing That we learn from this text is this It's harder To heal our souls Than our bodies It's harder to heal our souls than our bodies Now listen, in in this text there's been So much more, there's been so much ink that's been spilled Around the question that Jesus Poses in verse 9 In the history of the church Pick up in verse 8 where Jesus says And immediately Jesus after He pronounced forgiveness of this man's sins, immediately Jesus perceiving in His spirit that they questioned within themselves, right? They were questioning, how does He have the authority to forgive sins? Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew in their hearts what they were asking. Listen to what He says. Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or say, rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said in the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. There's been a lot of ink spilled over that question, which is easier. To say to the man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to the man, pick up your bed and walk, and walk which is easier. Right? And and at face value, right? We're, we're inclined to think it's easier. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because, listen, no one can validate or verify here on earth whether or not the sins have been forgiven. But we can verify whether or not the dude picks up his mat and takes it out the door, walking on his own two feet when he was lowered in before. We can validate that. There's objective, measurable data that we can verify, right? Analytics. AWS is, is running computations, right? But listen... I want you to consider something with me for a moment. Jesus heals the man to validate, yes, his identity as God, who has the authority to forgive sins. But listen, in the pronouncement, or in the pronouncement of take up your bed and walk, what he says affects the man's healing. Okay? So his, his speaking of those words brings about healing to the man's legs. His legs move from immobile to mobile, and now he walks out of the house. A healed Man, no longer paralyzed. Because what he says does something. It affects something. It brings about a condition in the man's life. So listen, I want you to know something. Remember, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mm-hmm. If the speaking of the words, take up your mat and walk affects. Those two things are parallel in the text. If you speak speaking of the words, take up your mat and walk affects the condition of healing in his life than him pronouncing your sins forgiven effects brings about the result of forgiveness actually being given to the man for his sins. Yes. Now listen. If you understand the rest of the Bible, if you understand the rest of the Bible, what do you recognize is this. Is that without, we told us in the scriptures, without shedding of blood there is no Remission. There is no forgiveness of sin. There is no reconciliation. There is no right standing with God. And Jesus is saying this. Listen, any healer, or worker of miraculous deeds can come through and he can heal the man. He can affect a healing in his legs and he can rise and leave over. Oh, but listen, only I, as a God, have the authority to renounce sins and affectings. The condition of forgiveness to be brought in this man's life. And how does he do that? He does it. If you fast forward to Mark's Gospel in Mark 15 by going to the cross. By the shedding of His blood for the sins of that man and for all who would trust Him and treasure Him. Listen, Jesus knows it is going to be infinitely more costly for him to affect the condition of forgiveness than it would be for him to affect the condition of physical healing. So it's, it costs infinitely more to heal our souls than it does our bodies. Listen, in our day and age, there are many physicians who are able to heal the body. through the advances of modern medicine, but there is still only one physician who is able to heal your soul his name is Jesus. He is the only one with the ability to affect forgiveness. See, what Jesus understood was the only way to make that man dance forever was that if he died. The only way to make that le- man's legs mobile forever was that if his legs were immobilized. Because in the healing of that man the, and the verifying of his identity, when he set forth in motion was the first step toward the cross where he would be crucified. Because he knew that if he made this claim to be God by the healing of this man's body, that it would set forth this vicious opposition to his ministry with murderous intentions in the hearts of the religious leaders. And it would ultimately end in his crucifixion upon the cross. And yet he does so. He does so. And I want you to consider who He does before. Listen, in this crowd, you had people who were there who were trying to use Jesus and people who were trying to kill Jesus. They were trying to use Him to get what they wanted and they were trying to kill Jesus because of who He claimed to be. Listen, I want you to know that those Two categories of people are still present today. Those who stand standing flatly opposed to Jesus because of who He claims to be and those who are trying to use Jesus as leverage to get what they actually want in their hearts. They're true saviors. And yet, for people like that, people like me, people like you, He affects the healing and steps His feet upon the path that would lead Him to His death. Because He knew it would be harder to heal our souls than our bodies. So finally this morning, what do we do with all this? What do we do with all this? One thing I want to give you as we, as we close is this. It's come to Jesus for forgiveness. It can be found nowhere else in the church. Nowhere else. That's the whole point of this passage. The whole point of this passage, listen, is not... Is, is, is not that you, you need to go out and buy a circular saw and cut a hole in the roof and lower people down, right? You ought to have a heart for people that are willing to, to bring them to Jesus. The whole point of this passage is not necessarily the actions of the men lowering the paralyzed man before Jesus, but Jesus' authority to forgive sins and His validation of that authority through the healing and the, the plan that He sets in motion by healing Him and showing the world who He was. That's the whole point of this passage. See Jesus, not yourself here, and come to Him to find forgiveness. Come to Him to find cleansing of your guilt and of your shame. Listen, looking back upon my life, there are things that I am not proud of. Anybody else can testify. And i get a witness, right? There are things that we are not proud of. Things that we would not boast about. Things that we would look back and be ashamed of. There are things that maybe you did last week that are still gnawing at your soul. And what Jesus says is, Come to me. Come to me. And you will be healed. Come to me and I will meet the deepest need of your soul the subterranean need of dealing with your sin, of your guilt, and of your shame. Come to me for forgiveness, church. Listen, some of us are perhaps scared to come to you. Because we're afraid of how he would respond to us. But listen, I'll quote C.S. Lewis one more time this morning. In his own autobiography, he says this about God. He says, The hardness of God is softer and the softness of men. The hardness of God is softer than the softness of men. In other words, the standard by which we would be judged by men on account of our failures, on account of our flaws. Whenever we come to God, there is a compassion and a tenderness and a mercy and a grace that stands ready to receive and forgive. You've got to believe that, church. If you're going to come to Him, you've got to know that He stands ready to receive you. He stands ready to forgive you. Don't have fear for how he's going to respond. Keep you from stepping forward. The second thing you've got to keep from allowing is to come to Jesus to find forgiveness is your pride. And listen, pride will keep you from Jesus in two ways. First, pride will keep you from Jesus whenever you believe that you are too good to need him. In other words, my claws are sufficient to get rid of my skin. But listen, pride will also keep you from Jesus in a second way. By believing that you're too bad to find forgiveness in you. See, pride does both. Pride says, Jesus couldn't really forgive me. I mean, does he really, does he really know what I did? And pride also says, I don't know that I need forgiveness from Jesus, because didn't know how good I've been. Mr. Rogers, it's a beautiful day in my neighborhood. <laughs> pride gives us Jesus in both ways. And Jesus says, listen, lay aside your fear, lay aside your pride, and come. Come and find forgiveness. Come and find the healing of your soul forgiveness for all of your sins of commission and all of your sins of omission. Listen, all the things that you did that God says you should not do. And come and find forgiveness for all the things that God said you should do and yet you did not. Right? Both and. Jesus stands ready to forgive. He says, come and find forgiveness for the callousness of your heart that's hardened against me, but also come and find forgiveness for the cowardice of your heart that refuses to move forward in courage in the advancement of the Gospel. He says, come and find forgiveness for all of your pride and fear. Come and find forgiveness for all of, 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 of the ways in which you've twisted and distorted human sexuality. Come and find forgiveness for all of the ways in which you have deceived and lied. Come and find forgiveness for all the ways which you have built your identity on something less than God seeking to find satisfaction security and significance apart from Him come and find it it is free it is free to you and it costs Him everything so this morning as we come to the Lord's table to take of the bread and take of the cup together the church body here's what I want to ask you to do I ask you that before you come, that you would spend time in reflection. You would spend time in contemplation. You spend time in prayer, maybe praying the prayer of David, in the Psalm saying, "Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, know my wicked thoughts. Reveal if there's anything within me that offends you." Before you come to the table, and that you would confess that, and that you like. John says in 1 John that if you confess your sins, that you would find him to be faithful and just, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness and forgive all of your sins. And that you would come to the table this morning, not with a burdened heart, but with a free one, knowing that he is forgiven, knowing that he is healed. So I'm going to pray for us, our elders are going to come. Steve, bud, you take this table, and I'll take this one. And as, as we come to serve the elements, I'm going to invite you as the band leads. Right, they're going to come now, Steve, would you go ahead and move. The band to come and receive the elders, and they on stage. And as they do, just the quietness of this moment is to ask you to spend time reflecting, contemplating, praying. The Lord would surface those things in your heart. Those sins. The steps that erupt along that fault line. Then he's saying, "Confess and be free." Father, we thank you today. Thank you for the word this morning. It reminds us that we cannot rid ourselves of the dragonness of our own hearts, but only you. And Your Son are able to pierce through to the depths of our soul and peel away the scales that we might find ourselves cleansed in the pools and be real men and women again. Father, as we consider our lives as we ask you to search our hearts would you bring to surface those things that have been buried underneath and that God rather than in fear running away or pride that would lead us to defensiveness and in humility and confidence that we would approach the throne of grace boldly knowing that we have an advocate who at great cost to himself made provision for the healing of our souls and not just our bodies. That we might be healed forever and not just in this life. And that we would flee to him. We would acknowledge our sin before him. And that we may be able to come to the table fully free, knowing we've been forgiven. We pray in Jesus' name.